Go ahead and get, this, uh, get that out and welcome to part two of the series, uh, Reclaim. The book of Ezra, this Old Testament dude, this series is about reclaiming spiritual ground that we may have lost to the enemy uh, in our own individual lives, but also in the lives of the church. And this, uh, we're looking at God bringing his people back uh, from captivity in Babylon after 70 years, and then the rebuilding uh, God does of his people, but also rebuilding the temple uh, and the nation of Judah. We started out with uh, three beginnings last week, if you'll remember, three little beginnings to stories of individual Christians that had lost spiritual ground. And so we're going to do that again, just a real quick kind of intro to the story of just one this week of an individual guy. Now, this is a real story. Names are not in here, but here it is. When I first came to Christ, and I believe, it really started to click. And as I would attend, and, and I, I got on track to really start loving Jesus, growing my faith, and it wasn't too long, maybe about a year afterwards, I, I felt like God speaking to me, like there was something in me that I needed to do, maybe to be a pastor or a missionary or something, that God was calling me into vocational work for him. I, <laughs> I even started school for a little while, and in my spirit, I'm, I was, had this stirring, and so I met with my pastor, you know, just one-on-one, what is this thing about? And so he said, I, he confirmed that stirring in him for me, that God was definitely doing something. So I started to pray, and he encouraged me to take this idea and run with it in prayer, to even fast and seek God. So he sent me away with this plan to start seeking God and listening and acting in faith. So, well, what happened? I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that that call of God became more clear as it became more clear. I became began to seize up. I mean, this is what I was supposed to do with my life. I I looked at it and I thought, I can't leave my job. I can't leave my town. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but I, I make a pretty good salary. And, and it's not that I wouldn't take a pay cut to do ministry. It's more that I just couldn't see how all the things kind of fit together before I took that first step. And so here I am. I mean, I've not taken any step. And my worry is have I missed God? Well, I wish I could tell you that everything worked out. But the truth is, I pulled back. I still love Jesus. I still follow Jesus. I, I come to church every time the doors are open. I still feel this thing inside. But I wonder, I wonder, have I missed my chance? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, we pray and ask for your blessing. God, would you make yourself real to us as we study the words of Scripture the words of life in the Bible right in front of us. Holy Spirit, we know you are here in this place in the heart of every believer hearing my voice. We just pray that you would move us, that you would work in our hearts to hear and obey the words of life that we read today. God, I pray for all the distractions of life, the the busyness, the troubles, the thoughts in our minds. And God, would you just kind of blur those out for a little bit so we could just focus on you and focus on your words today. God, we worship you. 
who you are, what you have done, what you're going to do. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen, amen. Well, I feel like this is the first week of the series, although it's the second week. I feel that way because the first week we looked so much at the prophet Isaiah and the prophet uh, Jeremiah of how the setting is for Ezra. So as we go back uh, and look at this week of really diving into Ezra, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go listen to that podcast wherever you listen to podcasts at. Uh, and we learned some solid stuff about this. But we can sum it up this way. God had warned Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that if they did not turn from their sin, that he was going to whack them, right? And specifically that he would raise up a pagan, foreign, godless country and come in and take them away. And he says, I'm going to take you away for 70 years if you don't do this. Well, they didn't stop sinning. They did not. They disobeyed God, and then God's word came true. Surprise, right? The vast majority of people are killed. I'm not saying that lightly. Millions. A remnant of the Hebrew people, the top echelon uh, from Jerusalem, they are taken prisoner to Babylon in the east for 70 years. Now, at the end of that 70-year time frame, uh, Persia uh, comes and takes over Babylon, and this Persian king, Cyrus, defeats the Babylonian king in almost a bloodless coup. It's a fascinating story. They literally divert the river so they can walk across on dry ground. They just kill the king and a few top officials. Now they're in charge of this. And what we talked about, uh, Cyrus, this Persian king, he's pulled aside, right, by this Hebrew. And he says, you need to understand, O king, that your name is written in this old book of Isaiah. Listen, and he reads them, his name written before the king was born, his name and what he's going to do. That he's going to namely set the captives of uh, Israel free to go back. And second, for them to build a temple for him to fund it. Now this should blow your mind. Remember, the city of Jerusalem and the Hebrew people... Uh, in the, I'm sorry, the Hebrew temple built by Solomon, the great king, had been destroyed and the city had laid in ruins for 70 years at this point. No one lived in the city. It wasn't like partially destroyed. It literally says the blocks were not on top of each other. All of that was written before Cyrus was born or even before Jerusalem had been destroyed in the first place. And this, the big point of last week, we want to remind ourselves is God's sovereignty. In other words, that nothing, no force can force God's hand, meaning there's nothing outside, that can, uh, outside God that can force his hand, and that God moves, listen to me, in the hearts of mankind, also in the nations of man, and he accomplishes his purpose with whoever he wants to. And notice I didn't just say his followers, he just moves in people's heart. In fact, that God is in complete control to bring about his purposes. That's what we talked about. We always keep in mind that although God uses all of this for his purposes, even evil kings like Cyrus, he is not the author of evil. In fact, we saw evil is not a created thing in the first place. We know from Genesis that God created creation good. What is evil? 
It's less than good. It's incomplete. So that always brings up this question that we always ask as we seek to reclaim spiritual ground that has been lost to individuals or the church, right? What do we do in light of the sovereignty of God? Like if he's all in control, how do we respond? Well, let's start where we left off. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Now here's the proclamation. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now look at that back at verse 1. Look at that verse 1. There is a line there that says, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus. It may, in your translation, may say stirred that. That's an important word for you to know. Uh, the Hebrew word behind it here, this is what it means, not just roused. It means roused. It means stirred or awakened, disturbed, or I like this one, irritated to action. Has God ever done that to you? Like just irritates you, right? It irritates to action. So it means roused, stirred, awakened, disturbed, irritated to action. All of those to get you to move, to take action. It's kind of like shaking someone awake that's been asleep and asking them to do something for you, but not quite. Because God wakes the spirit of Cyrus to take action. It does not mean that Cyrus became a believer in God. It doesn't mean that he converted to Judaism. He is a pagan, evil king, pretty sorry guy. And yet God moves in his spirit. He's just got this burr in the saddle, right? He's got to take action. He is stirred. He is roused. He has a bee in his bonnet, right? He's, going, he's not going to stop until he does something about it. Now, this is important because this is what you are about to see the Hebrew people do is a response to the same kind of stirring. God is going to stir them, rouse them both as, look, individuals and as a people group. When Scripture speaks, it always speaks both to the individual and to the group. And this stirring relates to you personally. If you are a Christian, you have been roused by the Holy Spirit, has awakened you from spiritual death, and regenerates you, right? God wakes you up from the spiritual death. You believe and you follow Jesus. So you're going to uh, want to pay close attention, you that are followers of Jesus. The king's proclamation is made known to the people. Look at verse 5. So the response 
So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priest and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, stirred, right? Prepared to go and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Look at this, roused and then dash, prepared. You're hearing this, you're feeling this thing, they're feeling this stirring, and so what do they do? They prepare, because it's not going to be an easy trip. We're going to see this, this is weeks and weeks that they'll be traveling, lots of people. So the Holy Spirit of God roused the people of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. You go, wait, it said three tribes. Yes, there are three tribes, but we only count two. Why? Because the Levite tribe is God's tribe. He said, that's mine. You don't ever count them. But they're there. There's three, but we say two. Make sense? Now, notice something here. Not all the Hebrews are stirred, or if they are stirred, not all respond but only those whose spirit God had roused. But multiple people are stirred by God at once. We call this a move of God. When multiple people are stirred to do the same thing at the same time, we call that a move of God. The Holy Spirit is moving in the group, but all at once through the individuals. Now, in the church age, uh, that we live in, in church history, since Christ's resurrection and ascent back to heaven, we call that a revival. When God moves in a lot of people's hearts and lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, now we sense this stirring, God moves. Now there have been some false revivals where people just kind of go, hey, let's have a revival and let's try to gin up some excitement for this. But there are real revivals where the Holy Spirit moves in individual hearts. So what is God stirring? What is he wanting them to do here? Well, to go back, to move back to a country that many of them had never been to, except the very old, and they were children when they left, to do what? Well, to build the temple of God. Now watch what the Holy Spirit does here uh, with this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is going to confirm what he's doing. So he's, he's roused them, but he's going to confirm also. The Spirit of God is speaking, rousing them awake. But then he's also doing something else. Look at verse 6. All their neighbors, talking about the Jews' neighbors, supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a free will offering. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you're a student of the Bible, this sounds like when God is leading the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, right? Centuries before this, Remember, the Egyptians had supplied treasure uh, to the Israelites when they leave so that they could build the tabernacle that would travel, the precursor to the temple. Now, the other nations around Israel are called to contribute, but both the king of Babylon and God stirring in their hearts. They don't even know that God's stirring in their hearts. These are not Christians. These are pagans, their neighbors, and God's going, hey, you should give all the gold that you have. And people are going, hey, I don't know why, but here's like the passcode to my ATM. I'd like to just give this to you. Is that okay? And the Jews are like, okay, I'll take that. Here's a fundamental thing that we have to understand about God when he calls us to his work. I'm talking about believers. Write this down. When the Holy Spirit calls us to action, he will supply the means. 
when the Holy Spirit calls us to action, He will supply the means. God will supply the means. Do you get that? This is important because you remember that story we said at first. I mean, we can look with what God calls us to do and be scared off for, for, I go, I don't know how to do this. Don't miss this. God is calling these Hebrew people to return home to build the temple that had been destroyed. It's going to require that they move physically. It's going to require that they change their lives to get out of their comfort zone or what they know. And it's going to cost them, check this out, cash. It's going to cost them money. It's going to cost them resources they will have to sacrifice. But look, God is going to provide or supply the means to act on his will. This is important because each one of you are called by God. Each one of the Christians in here are called by God to act for him. But that may not always be visible what his supply is. Like we may have to take a step of faith if we hear God's call to act and we may not see everything that God is doing, right? We may not have all the picture of behind the scenes. In fact, that's pretty rare that you would. This is faith building 101. This is how we as God's people grow in our faith. This is the blocking and tackling of being a Christian. It is the spiritually how we begin to grow in our faith. And what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines it. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. Look at that. Faith is the reality. That believing represents the reality, right? It is reality of what is hoped for, even though we don't see it. A reality, let that sink in. Faith is a reality. It's not just pie in the sky. And then check that next line out. Faith is the proof of what is not seen. I don't know if you're getting this, but the idea of Faith, this believing that you have, is proof. It is evidence of what is not seen. Now, why is faith so important for us? Well, skip down to verse 6 of Hebrews 11. It says this, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Real faith in God does not simply believe there is a universe, right? Some divine presence. That's not faith. No, authentic God-given faith is this gift from him that says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's faith. That's the gift. Real faith believes God, of, the God of Scripture, and that He is the one and only true God. We are monotheist. You know what that means? Mono meaning one. Theist meaning God. One God represented in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. On the flip side of that, if you don't have faith that God exists, it's equivalent to calling God a liar. You go, strong words? Yeah, it is. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 says this, 
The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. God has called his people in this first chapter of Ezra to take action in faith, right? He has called all their neighbors, the pagan neighbors, to fund the trip. Then something amazing happens. Cyrus gives back all the gold and silver that his uh, predecessors took from God's temple 70 years before. Right before the temple is destroyed, they get everything out, all the serving utensils out of it. These items were used in the function of God and worship of God in the temple. Check out verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had. Had taken from, Israel, from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Minradath, the treasurer, who counted them out as Shezbazar, you'll want to remember this guy's name for coming weeks, the prince of Judah. He's not really a prince, he's just a court official. This was the inventory. 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives, 30 gold bowls, 10 various uh, silver bowls and 1,000 other articles. The gold and silver articles totaled 5,400. Shezbazar brought all of them when the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's a lot of weight, by the way. It's heavy stuff. A couple of things you need to see here. The total is 5,400. Uh, that is right. Uh, that's what the Hebrews take back. But if you add up the line items before that, they don't match the 5,400. They're not intended to. Those are broken out. That's a little subset. You don't take that total and the 5,400. In other words, it's just saying the 5,400 is the total. But here's some special things we want to list out. We don't know why. The bigger point here is this. A king is giving his gold and silver and precious articles of, uh, from his treasury. He's giving those up. From a kingdom he just defeated. Listen to me, that doesn't happen. Kings don't give up gold. They just don't. And here he goes, I'm going to give it up. But I want to point out a little story here. You may remember this uh, we study this one in Sunday school when you're a little kid, uh, if you've uh, been in Sunday school, but it's a fascinating, fascinating story. We don't have time to dive deep on this. Just want to mention it. Should give you kind of a little bit of a chill when you think about this. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the original Babylonian king that hauls them off into captivity. He's the one that destroyed Judah and Jerusalem, took them to Babylon 70 years later. Now his grandson is in control, Belshazzar, and he held a great banquet. And the commands, and then he commands that the golden cups and the articles, some of the articles from the temple, be brought out to drink. Now there's little ears in the room, but you just got to think this big party is a pretty sick thing. It's a pretty sick deal. 
They tell us that they're probably not wearing anything. This is a sick pagan festival. But something happens as they begin to drink wine from these golden bowls. A hand, a literal hand, starts to write on the wall. And he writes, and the king, I, I love this, uh, the king's so afraid that uh, that doesn't say it specifically. you got to know what to look for. It says he pooped his pants, except he wasn't wearing any pants. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I love the King James Version. Um, the King James Version says, uh, God loosened his hips, hip muscles. <laughs> I love that. They're trying to say it. Well, he pooped his pants. He is so scared. His knees are knocking together. There's a handwriting on the wall. Everybody is freaked. They're freaked out. The decadence there. And so he brings in, he says, uh, uh, give somebody that can tell me what this means. He brings the prophet Daniel in and he says, your kingdom, this is what it says, the Prophet Daniel says, he says, your kingdom, the writing on the wall, has been brought to an end. It says, you, O king, have been weighed in the balance and you have been found wanting. Your kingdom is divided between the Medes and the Persians. And he's going, that's really scary. Well, the king, Belshazzar, he is standing there, knees knocking together, thinking, what does this mean? Later that night, he would be killed. The Persians and the Medes would take over. What's crazy is King Cyrus was invading Babylon, and King Belteshazzar is killed right there. King Cyrus had to have been told what had happened in this story, he wasn't going to keep these gold cups anymore. He's not like, oh, hey, no, 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 you take them back, you take them back, right? He goes, uh, I, you, you go ahead, go to Jerusalem far away. You can read about that story in Daniel 5. We should preach on that sometime. It'd take us weeks, but it'd be good. Okay, back to Ezra. God had moved in all these hearts to take action. Now, the ball is in the court of the Hebrew people, right? God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. But he gives us the ability either to follow him or not. Do you catch that? He's sovereign, but he's saying, you can follow me or not. Now, here's the problem. These Hebrews in Babylon had grown rich and comfortable in this foreign land. If they followed God's stirring, the rousing in their hearts, they would have to leave their homes. They'd have to leave the comfort of Babylon to return to a hostile environment. They would have to leave what they know and return to a place they did not know, except the very, very old that remembered it as children. There was no comfort in Israel. Babylon was the most advanced society up to that age. We would like Babylon living there if we had money. But they would have to return back. There were no cities and towns and buildings. They would have to live in this rubble, literally in tents, until they could rebuild their houses. They would have to get out of their comfort zone. Now, here's the thing with God. And when he calls us as believers to take action on something, some step of faith, he, we still have to get out of our comfort zone and face the unknown. And listen, when God calls us, he calls us, check this out, to hard situations, difficult situations. Maybe you've heard uh, from God and you have this 
stirring in your spirit. Maybe you don't even know exactly what it is. Maybe you do. You know what it is. This Holy Spirit, and as you've looked at the prospect of what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do, it frightens you because you don't have all the details. And you're a detailed person. You go, God, it's not like I don't have faith, but I just want to know some details. And God's like, sorry. And like we talked about before, that is where you have to exercise your faith. What I find very interesting is no matter what God calls us to in our life, whether it be teaching and preaching like I'm doing right now, or working uh, with youth, or uh, facilitating a discipleship group, every calling of every person, every individual, listen to me, no matter the function, has the same goal. What is it? To build the church, to build the temple, or back then what we called the temple of God, to build the church. Here's what I mean. See, the Israelites were being called back to Israel, to Judah, to build this physical temple where they would interact with God. But now, since Jesus came and purchased our freedom by his death on the cross, he has sent his Holy Spirit to live within the hearts, the lives of the believers, right? the third person of the Trinity, to come and live in us. No longer is there a temple built with stones. No longer is there a physical place, temple, inside um, that you go into. The temple now is right here. The Holy of Holies is in your heart. Each believer is, in a sense, a stone that makes up the temple of God, right? God is building himself a temple with your lives. Now, it's why I say it's good to be in the house of the Lord. That doesn't mean a physical building, ever. It means the temple that God is building through you, and you, and you, and you. So what do these people, these Hebrews do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles from King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Had deported to Babylon, they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They all go back, at least the first wave goes back. About 50 thousand of them. You can read about this in chapter 2. If you read chapter 2, it tells you how many went back from each family, what they did, what their function is, like these many priests, this uh, many descendants of this guy, this many uh, temple guards, this many, I love it, has the band. It's like the band. Everybody's like, we're with the band. You, you can see the band in there, right? They're carrying like their bass and they're like smoking because that's what the band does. But I'm just kidding, about, not our band. Okay, God is true to his word. He redeems his people once again from bondage. You can read on that. Now, um, little side note here. This is the first wave of Hebrews that go back to rebuild the temple. Eventually, there will be two more groups that go back, spread over many years. We'll look at all of them. The reason that this is so interesting is this. Now, listen close. Before the people were taken away into captivity, when they were a sovereign nation, Judah, God would warn both his country, Israel and Judah, those two, the northern and southern kingdom. He says, if you don't turn from your sin, 
He says, I'm going to raise up someone and, and come and drag you off, kill most of you, drag you off, destroy everything of value. Three times God warns them and three times they turn their back on God and turn their face towards sin, right? Three different groups. It had been 70 years since the last group had been taken into captivity. And now, just like that, three groups are taken away. Three groups are returned. It's pretty cool. And this is the first group listed in chapter 2. That's what chapter 2 is all about. Now, we're not going to go line by line. This is like reading a phone book here. I'm not making fun. I'm just going, this is, this is doing something here. The reason it is in here is to teach each person that is returning, they have to be legit to return. Does that make sense? Listen close. They have to show that they are the bloodline of not just a Hebrew, but specifically what Hebrew you are a bloodline of. That means everything about money, inheritance, what you're allowed to do as a job, what you're prohibited from doing as a job. Listen, everything money and power-wise is based on who's your daddy and who's his daddy and his daddy and his daddy all the way back. Now next week, we're going to pick it up when they arrive in Judah and what happens, it's awesome. You're going to love this. Like they get there and everything's destroyed. What do they do? Now let me end with a couple of thoughts. First, only 50,000 Israelites returned. And we'll look at that story next week. But there is far more that stayed behind in Babylon. It wasn't their home. Babylon wasn't their home, but they had made that their home. They had gotten comfortable there. They missed the stirring of God and missed, let's, let's just be honest, they had missed the point of their life. In the stirring of the Holy Spirit, when God calls a Christian to action for him, for the kingdom, and you say no to God, that's a serious thing. Sometimes there will be other chances to follow him. And sometimes not. What I want you to understand is there is a too late. Like you could wait too long. In other words, you can miss what God is calling you to do. You can miss the point of your life and why you were created in the first place. In fact, I'm convinced that most Christians at Bentry are missing the point of their life. They want to stay in a comfortable place and not alter their life in the process they miss God's point. Now listen, God is giving you time to reclaim the ground you may have lost or take this new spiritual ground the enemy has taken from the kingdom. To reclaim the world for Christ Jesus and his kingdom, amen? Amen. Here's my question for you. Is there a stirring in your spirit to take action on something you have heard from God? Is there a rousing that God is like putting that burr in your saddle like, hey, I want you to do this? And you may not even know what it is totally. Maybe you know exactly what it is like that guy we talked about at the, at the very start and you were just kind of like, I need to know more details, God, before I take this step of faith. Maybe that stirring has been this week. Maybe it's been last decade. Either way, your prayer should always be, God, what is it that you are rousing in my heart? What are you stirring up right now for me to do for you? That should be the prayer. 
Is it to serve here at Bentry? I mean, really serve. I'd volunteer every once in a while, like, get your hands dirty. You're like, really know people and serve here. Or is it something else? Maybe it's serving at House of Neighborly Services, another ministry we support in town, serving the homeless. Are you being called into full-time vocational ministry? That's not a higher calling in the sense of more value. It's just different, but that's a, that's a huge step of faith. You usually have to, to move. You have to go do stuff. And then ask God for this. What are the steps of faith that I can make towards that goal? Let's go into a time of prayer. We're going to take a little time on this, so relax. Heavenly Father, as we have just sought your face in this reading of your words and Scripture, uh, we've just been convicted. We've been stirred. God, I pray for our church family right now. I pray that over the next few minutes that your Holy Spirit would just, just continue to stir us, rouse us to your will for our individual lives. Show us what you want us to do, both as individuals and as a body. As you just continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, what I want you to do is to focus on listening to God. What is he stirring in you? Ask him right now, what is my next step of faith? Is it to start serving here at Bentry? Is it to start having some coffee breaks at work and maybe start talking about Jesus a little bit? Like little short times where you can just say, hey, this is why I follow Christ. Is it to start a Bible study at your school, your work? Is it to start leading your children each night or each morning in a devotional? You know, teaching them little songs and reading a Bible story together and maybe doing a little craft together, teaching them what it means to be a Christ follower? Is it starting to ask people at work how you can be praying for them? And when they share those prayer needs, just to simply say, can I pray for you right now? And pray for them. What is it? We're going to let the band play for just a few moments here. And as you pray, I want you to listen. Clear your mind. Guard each thought. See if God is speaking to you.
Did you hear from God? What was it He is stirring in your spirit right now? What is it? Listen, you may not know it all, but do you know the next step? Be faithful in taking that. Maybe it's just to seek Him right now in fasting and prayer. Like you, you don't have specifics. Maybe it's just to wait on the Lord. Sometimes the hardest thing you can do is to wait. To seek Him in prayer earnestly. And listen, maybe God's asking you to stop sinning. Like maybe you have some secret sin you're hiding. That you're keeping from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you think you're keeping it from God, but he's going, just repent. Are you willing to take the step of faith to repent, to turn from your sin? What's your response to God? What I'm saying is that this is how you actually exercise your faith. Hearing from God and then taking the next step that you sense he is calling. Being obedient to his call. We're going to move into our time of communion. She just stay in an attitude of prayer. Our guest services team is going to pass out the elements of communion. I just ask that you take them Hold them in your hand, the little cup of juice, the little piece of bread. We'll take them all together in the same moment. Christians are the only ones that should take this. Scripture tells us it's quite literally dangerous if, to take communion if you are not a Christian. And as for children, if they've made a, a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, by all means, they should take, take communion. So you guys can go ahead and pass those pieces out. You should just continue in a word of prayer. You can look up here and have your eyes open or you can be in prayer with your eyes closed. I just want you to think about this thing. We, I mean, all people are born ultimately from the bloodline of Adam. Listen close. All people, Christian or not, ultimately we're born from the bloodline of the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, right? And because of that, our inheritance is sin. Original sin. That's our inheritance. We say this often, but it, pair, it bears repeating. All men are guilty of sin. Not just because of our sin, we're guilty of that, but because Psalm 51 verse 5 says that we are literally born and even conceived in sin. We are born into a jacked up, messed up, sin-filled world. Yes, we are guilty of our sin, but we are born guilty. The way we, we say it is this, we are sinners not because we sin. But listen to me, we sin because we are sinners. It's our bloodline because we are from Adam and, and Eve. The death and hell awaits us because of that sin. But for those who have called on the name of Jesus to be saved, have placed their faith in Him as Savior and Lord, we have a new inheritance. 
a new Adam, if you will. We are adopted into this new bloodline. Not from the old Adam, but the new Adam, Jesus. The blood of Jesus, his death is this gift to us. It is this gift that we did not earn. It can't be good enough. Praise God, because I can't be good enough. Romans 5, verse 15 talks about this. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the one man's trespass, the many died, talking about Adam, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? Overflowed to the many. And the gift, talking about Jesus' life given for us, is not like the one man's sin. Because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. But for the many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more? Well, those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you get it? With the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been purchased. We are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer from the bloodline of Adam and Eve, but the bloodline of Jesus Christ, the Son of the true and one living God. Literally, we are now sons and daughters of God because of the blood of Christ spilled at Calvary. If we are Christians, we are from the bloodline of Jesus We take the benefits of what that means. His righteousness, eternal life, forgiveness of our sins. Take that little bread and that cup of juice. What do we do right now is that Jesus commanded us to do to remember his death right now. Jesus in the presence, in our midst. This is the holy time. Take just a moment to repent of your sins. Let the Holy Spirit reveal those to you. If there are, is there any unforgiveness of any person in your heart, take that time to let that go before you take the elements. If you can't forgive them, don't take the elements. Forgiveness needs to come first. Take the little piece of bread. Take it and eat it. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Nailed to a tree. Take the little cup of juice. This is the blood of Christ spilled at Calvary to purchase your freedom. Take and drink it. We remember, God, what you have done for us. We remember that you proved your love for us and that while we were still sinners, dead in our sins, you gave us your son, Jesus, 
because we were of the wrong bloodline. We were of Adam, and now you have come in as our Father and purchased through the blood of Jesus our freedom. So right now, as we remember, as we take this this, uh, communion together as your church, as your people, we remember, we sense the grace that you are communicating in this moment. And we look forward to having that time with you in heaven. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we all prayed and said, Amen.